Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation proven profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, June 14th, marks our 70th show. So my name is Brian Murphy. I'm your host for today's program, A Matter of Principal Diagnosis. So I'm joined today by my familiar co-host, Laurie Prescott. Laurie is an MSNRN, CCDS, and CDIP, as well as a CRC, and is our CDI Education Director here for Actus and, and BLR Healthcare in Middleton. She's a developer and lead instructor for the Actus Bootcamp line. Um, she's a former CDI manager and a nursing manager and has authored um, the Complete CDI Specialist Training Guide for us and is also author of the just-released Essential Guide to Supporting Quality Care Measures Through Documentation Improvement. I'm glad to have her back on the show, so welcome, Laurie. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Okay. And next, I'd like to introduce today's industry guest. So Sandra Ruthier, RHIA, CCS, and CDIP is an HIM coding professional with more than 30 years of experience with a strong emphasis on operations, inpatient coding and reimbursement, medical record documentation requirements, ICD-10, electronic records, as well as regulatory and accreditation requirements. She has a love for continuing education in our ever-changing healthcare environment and a passion for our profession. She's currently the VP of Revenue Integrity for CloudMed Solutions. Uh, prior to entering the consult consulting portion of her career six years ago, she worked previously in acute care hospitals in a variety of roles, including HIM Director, RevCycle Director, and Information Systems Director, and I'm pleased to have her on her first Actus Radio. So, Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be part of your 70th program today. <laughs> All right. Well, as we always do, we're going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. Encourage you, uh, our listeners, to weigh in with the question that most pertains to you, and we will come back to the results in just a few minutes. Though so the poll is, who is responsible for final principal diagnosis selection in your facility? Is it CDI? Is it your HIM coding department? Perhaps it's a combination of the two, be a discussion. Um, is it um, someone else not included in here, or is it uh, not applicable to those folks that might not be in the hospital setting? Again, who is responsible for final principal diagnosis in your facility? Is it CDI? Is it HIM coding? Is it a combination of the two? Is it... Um, someone else, other, or is it not applicable to your situation? We've got about 76% of our audience voting. We've got a little over 550 attendees currently on the show, so we're going to go ahead and close this out, but we will, we will come back to that uh, in just a few minutes. All right. As I mentioned, our guest today is uh, Sandy Ruthier. Again, Sandy, welcome to the program, and thanks for being a part of Actus Radio today. Um, so let's let's go ahead and jump right into this topic. Uh, 
these principal diagnosis has been the subject of everything from multi-hour classes to week-long boot camps. I know it's uh, a difficult, subjective um, type of a of a topic uh, with a lot of guidance. But maybe you could just briefly explain for us, you know, why is principal diagnosis such a complex issue and continues to be for for so many CDI and, and coding departments? Yeah, thank thank you, Brian. Um, Principal diagnosis selection, as, as we all know, is one of the most crucial decisions that we make in our DRG assignment. It's the primary driver of that DRG assignment and is important for other things that, that trickle down from that, things like you know who's included or excluded from certain quality projects, mortality data, yeah, bundled payments, and things like that. Um, Usually we think of driving DRGs um, in medical cases with the principal diagnosis, but it also can impact our surgical DRGs as well. I mean, think about a uh, wound debridement case, excisional wound debridement. Depending on the principal diagnosis, it could fall into you know several different DRG triplets, such as 463 to 465 for uh, musculoskeletal connective tissue disorders or 622 to 624 for endocrine and nutrition and metabolic disorders and so forth. So it's really uh, what drives our DRG assignments. Also the impact that it has on things like principal diagnoses that act as their own CC or MCC or CC and MCC exclusions. So this content that I've created for a webcast started out being what I thought was going to be a 60 to 90 minute presentation or webcast material based on real examples that I've seen in the industry and my auditing experience. And I ended up with six hours of content because it is very <laughs> complex. <laughs> uh, wow. we, we have a lot of things that we have to consider, like the definition, coding guidelines, tabular instructions, coding clinic advice, and so forth. So uh, it is a, a complex thing that we do. Right. We're you know, you just, to you just made six me. Six hours now. <laughs> Go yeah, ahead, Laura. She, she made me giggle with that because, um, you know, our, our boot camps, we spend a huge amount of time talking about principal diagnosis selection and the importance of it and going through those guidelines um, to try to, um, I refer to them as the 50 shades of gray because everybody can kind of interpret things slightly different. When you're, I'm going to um, use that one. <laughs> well, my true description is less than sexy Fifty Shades of Grey. But when you're um, working with your students, and um, what guidelines do you find that you typically go back to, to to work with them to guide them through that process of principal diagnosis selection? Sure. Um, really what I see in my, my auditing, um, whether it's targeting through our automated software tool or and then validating with chart review. I, I really see three reasons that principal diagnoses are um, inaccurately assigned. Number one, it could be that you know they selected the wrong principal diagnosis based on the definition of PDX and the circumstances of the case. Uh, the second reason might be that it was you know sequenced incorrectly um, based on guidance from tabular instructions, coding clinic advice, coding guidelines. And then the third, which is actually the least uh, common but still uh, does happen periodically, is you know they selected the right condition that should be principal diagnosis, but then they just assigned the wrong code in, in 
error. Um, but really, you know, we have to consider all of all of the industry resources that we depend on, specifically the coding guidelines, uh, Section 2 PDX guidelines and the chapter-specific guidelines. But I think what is most overlooked is um, the tabular instructions and coding conventions related to code first and use additional code, uh, not to be confused with um, code also, which does not provide sequencing guidance. So my advice is to get, get our noses back in the books. You know, we're still adjusting to ICD-10, and we need to, to go to the source, which is our coding book, which trumps everything, um, including uh, coding guidelines and, and uh, coding clinic advice. I like that answer. I like that answer. <laughs> Thank you. Could you maybe, uh, Sandy, Give us a clinical example or two of maybe coexisting conditions in which one or the other should be sequenced as principal, but the other is often mistakenly sequenced first. Um, somewhat, and this is an, also a question from a listener about using uh, equally treated as a tool for choosing principal diagnoses. Um, a lot of confusion around this, I think. Maybe you could kind of uh, bring it down with an example or two. Sure, sure, and that can be really confusing. I mean, we have uh, we have three guidelines. We used to have four related to um, you know conditions that um, you know are interrelated conditions or meeting the definition of principal diagnosis or comparative and contrasting diagnoses. So, so you know they we've tried to to improve the guidance that we have, but again, it's it's going back to what are the merits of the case? I kind of think of coding as two distinct skill sets. One's that ability to read a record and make decisions on what conditions can be coded, specifically, you know, making that PDX selection, which, you know, are, are tools that we're, we're gaining in the industry, such as um, CACs, uh, the Computer Assisted Coding, you know, can't do that for us. We have to make that determination. Um, and then also, sometimes what I see still being applied is, um, you know, that, that uh, guideline related to a symptom followed by comparative and contrasting. So there's still, still some misapplication of that. But, um, you know, an example of a case might be a rib fracture, uh, and then there's an additional diagnosis for an intrathoracic organ injury, such as hemothorax or pneumothorax. Tabular instructions tell us in those scenarios that we need to sequence the intrathoracic uh, injury first above the, the fracture, which we see that incorrectly sequenced all the time. So again, you, you have to weigh the merits of the case based on the documentation and the circumstances of the admission, and then look to the guidance that tells us how we sequence those conditions. No, Sandy, I'm listening to you, and I was I was talking about those shades of gray. You know, a lot of times the CDI can look at the record and sequence one way, and the coding or coding um, professional can look at it and sequence it a, another way. When we're dealing with those gray areas, how do you recommend we resolve those issues? How do, how do um, you see hospitals successfully work through those disagreements? Yeah, that, that's a tough one because some of these cases are, are really complex medical cases, for example, that present challenges to all of us uh, in CDI and coding um, when it comes to deciphering 
the documentation and applying the definition, coding guidelines, tabular instructions, coding clinic advice. You know, I, I think of, uh, it, and I almost hesitate to bring it up, but, you know, respiratory failure with multiple other conditions like CHF or pneumonia, COPD exacerbation. Uh, it's keeping in mind things like readmission statistics and mortality and, and all of the things that, that could also uh, be taken into consideration when we're making those PDX selection, not, not just the actual individual reimbursement on the case. So I see lots of different approaches in the clients that I work with. Some are going back to concurrent coding and collaborating with a coding and CDI team concurrently having coding as a support line uh, for CDI to discuss these challenging cases, uh, reconciliation uh, at the time of final coding, getting on the phone and having those conversations with, with the CDI specialist and the coder. And also uh, one unique thing that I saw recently in a facility was on all mortality cases, it was a combination of coder, CDI, uh, and their quality physician and nurses that reviewed every case and made the final decision. So um, there's there's lots of ways hospitals are approaching this, but uh, in, in the end, um, you know, we have to somebody has to be the tiebreaker, right? Because we can only submit right. one claim and one DRG. Uh, these cases that that are problematic make really great case studies to to use in team meetings. For, uh, for learning purposes and to come to consensus on. Great example, Absolutely. thank you. Yeah, yeah that, that remains one of the uh, eternal struggles, I think, for CDI and HIM coding. It's, and, but I like what you've described, making sure the process, there is a process, there is a, a collaborative means to it, and there is a, a final arbiter eventually. You have to get that claim out the door, so uh, very nice. Do you have any other helpful resources that you might recommend to our listeners to help them with this subject? Anything that you've used, you know, when you're pulling together presentations or any corners of the of the World Wide Web, you know, could it be a website, could it be a course, maybe a listserv that you might recommend they look into, subscribe to for additional help um, on this subject? Sure. Um, some of the things that, that I use, and, and I do have a, a full list of bookmarks uh, on my internet here so that I can get to them quickly, but what I see is that um, the DRG expert from Optum is still a, a resource that I pull out almost daily. Sometimes I just need to know like what's driving the DRG in this case and what are my options to maybe move to a different DRG or, or you know, I need to know what it is, and that helps me. And that's really based on the CMS uh, website for the DRG definitions manual. That includes all the tables that drive the DRGs, the CCMCC assignments, principal diagnosis that acts like their own CCMCC, all those tables that CMS provides us with with the IPPS update every year are out there on that DRG definition, definitions manual on the web. Uh, they're a little challenging to navigate, but uh, once you get used to them, they can be really helpful tools. Um, another thing that's a resource within your own facility would be information coming back from your denials management team, 
what cases are coming back from your third-party auditors, whether it be your recovery auditors or other third-party payers, a QIO, what kind of cases, inpatient cases, are being denied uh, related to DRG validation, and then learn from those um, during that appeals process. Um, and as you mentioned, there's a, there's a lot of uh, good industry resources out there, a lot of vendors uh, like HC Pro and uh, MedLearn Publishing. I used to, for four years, Dr. Gold and I published a monthly newsletter that was a case study every month that was about uh, clinical examples, CDI opportunities, coding opportunities in individual case studies. And as you can imagine, he and I had some delightful conversations on some <laughs> cases. <laughs> we did not I didn't see realize you were yeah, 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 awesome. yeah. We did our last issue of the month that he passed away, actually. So we had, uh, you know, there's resources out there that that are good, uh, reputable resources um, that provide good case examples. That's where I get my material. Honestly, is from things that I see during my auditing activities. I don't need to make up examples; they're presented to me. So then I, I can uh, use them in my teaching and in webcast creations and so forth. I'll try to get some of those links into the uh, the show notes. So again, for folks listening, we we record all the Actus radios. They're on the Actus website, and I will link to the in the news articles, etc. But I'll I'll put some of those links, Sandy. Um, after the program in the in those uh, notes now maybe we have time for one quick question we got from our audience before we move on to our poll results um, I'll just float this out there see if we can answer it so the person asks um, what what does the condition after study mean as opposed to the circumstances of admission when you're determining the, the principal diagnosis can you draw any distinction there for our audience Sandy sure Sure, because that is part of our, our UHDDS definition for principal diagnosis. And uh, in cases, many cases, think of those that come through your emergency room with signs and symptoms and the condition isn't determined until after admission that, you know, it was a pulmonary embolism, for example, or it was a, a, a cancer that was obstructing the bowel or something like that. So we really need to, to look at the case and see what were the presenting signs and symptoms and then what was finally determined to be the, the final um, diagnosis that was determined and documented at the time of discharge. All right. Well, thank, thank you. This was very, very helpful on an important subject. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and share the uh, results of our poll. So you all should be seeing that again. We asked you, uh, who is responsible for final principal diagnosis selection in your facility? So 3% um, allows CDI to be the final uh, uh, selector of the principal diagnosis. Majority, 57%, it's HIM coding. Uh, more than a third, 37% say it's a combination of the two. No one selected other and 3% not applicable. So again, um, majority coding, 57%, another 37% combination and 3% CDI. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this poll, Sandy? Anything jump out at you? Um, actually, I, I do agree that um, the probably the highest percentage is HIM coding being the final uh, 
having the final say in the principal diagnosis selection and assignment at facilities. A uh, little surprised to see the combination of the two, and, and I should say um, uh, happy to see that because, um, you know, we all have the same end goal in mind is to get the cases coded accurately based on the merits of the case, and usually that takes a team effort, uh, the clinical documentation specialist as well as the coding professionals. So good to see that. Any thoughts from you at all, Laurie? I, I completely agree with what Sandy's saying. Um, there is a part of me that looks at that 3% that say that the CDIs are responsible for that, and I'm a little concerned for the 3% that say that because um, the coders are the um, keeper of the rules and the guidelines and the understanding when it comes to principal diagnosis selection. Um, so it concerns me that um, I wonder about compliance practices at those organizations because CDIs sometimes will push the limits. Um, but I love the combined. I love the fact that they're working together on it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we're going to go ahead and move on to our In the News segment of the show. Uh, in the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession or, frankly, just stuff that I find interesting. It may or may not be relevant, but uh, this, this one is a little relevant. Uh, so today I'm showing you here a recent article from Medscape.com. Uh, which is, for the first time, under half of physicians own their own practices. Um, I'm going to be, again, as I mentioned during, uh, when I was talking with Sandy earlier, I share all the links to these in the show notes. But uh, So this is a essentially a report of a recent survey by the, issued by the American Medical Association, uh, and Medscape reported on it. So, you know, from the article, it reads, continuing a long-term decline in physician ownership of practices, the percentage of doctors who own their practices dipped below half for the first time in 2016, according to this AMA survey. And this was reputable. It was of 3,500 U.S. physicians who provide at least 20 hours of patient care per week and are not employed by the federal government. Um, so the article states here, you can read that uh, in 2016, 47.1% of physicians held equity in their practices. That's compared to 50.8% in 2014 and 53.2% in 2012. So definitely that trend going downwards and is dipped below 50%. You know, some historic data. Um, in 1983, more than three-quarters of doctors were practice owners. So uh, we're definitely seeing that, that, that number go down, which is interesting. We'll get to that, the reasons why in a minute. But uh, the article does go on to state that um, hospital acquisitions of practices do seem to have dried up, at least temporarily. Uh, hospital ownership of physician practices and direct employment uh, of physicians by hospitals appears to have stalled after 2014. Uh, in 2014 and 2016, 32.8% of physicians were either directly employed by hospitals or worked in hospital-owned practices. Um, so that was stayed static for 2014 and 2016, as opposed to 29% in 2012. Um, you know, there are some practice management consultants explain that hospitals in many regions um, had as many practices they could handle and were concentrating on the ones that they owned. Um, so, and then some other interesting data in here about, you know, gender and age and how that impacts the results of the survey. 
But um, again, I thought it was interesting data elements. And you know, just to recap, we, here we are with physician practice ownership at an all-time low, uh, for better and for worse. You know, there, there are really some interesting comments. If you guys haven't checked out um, Medscape, it's, an, it's, a, it's a nice website because it's, it's physician-driven and you will, there's 25 comments. I'm not going to go through them here. And some, of the, some of the wording may not be you know, appropriate for Actus Radio. Uh, but it's it, it's interesting to hear from doctors talking about this and the reasons why. Um, you know, j just from a CDI perspective, maybe I'll float it out to to Sandy and to um, to Laurie. You know, I mean, obviously the, the the key struggle for CDI over the years has been what's in it for me for the physician. This seems like a good thing for CDI because you know does does this get around the case if we have if we have these physicians now employed by hospitals, they're obviously much more apt, I would think, to answer queries, buy in, you know, uh, really adhere to document best practice documentation, you know, but I also know it could open up new challenges, um, new opportunities and challenges as well for CDI departments when a hospital acquires a practice or practices. So I'll just open it up to you guys. Any any thoughts? Maybe starting with you, Sandy, on on this trend and and what it could mean for for CDI. Sure. Uh, a couple things that come to mind. First off, is um, you know what those contracts look like, the contractual obligations with the between the hospital and the the physicians, things related to the timeliness of record completion and responding to queries. Obviously, you know could be included in the contract and. and to hold them accountable, as well as uh, mandatory ongoing education related to documentation and so forth. Uh, when I think about the impact to the revenue cycle, because I've been in this situation with my last hospital that I worked at as we acquired more physician practices is the impact that it has on revenue cycle operations, centralizing the physician coding and billing, for example and then making sure that um, you know everything's in sync you know if if we're we we own the orthopedic practice and we're billing for a, uh, a total joint replacement for our physician uh, our inpatient records should reflect the same and not just an ORIF for example so making sure that that they match up so those were a couple of things that came to mind on this subject right interesting yeah that's important to point out any 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 thoughts from you at all, Laurie, on this trend? Well, when I read it, I, I tend to me it's a, it's a reflection of the stressors that our providers are experiencing these days. You know, none of them went into medicine to run a business. And, you know, years ago, the business of doctoring was much more simple. Now they're dealing with meaningful use guidelines and um, quality um, measures and reporting of those quality measures and so many other layers it's it's understandable that they it's easier for them to you know lend their practices either to larger organizations or to hospitals to manage that piece so that perhaps they can focus on the medicine because um, I, I know how stressful it is for these physicians to to try to manage both. So when when I read it, to me it was a picture of just the changes in how reimbursement is happening in medical care and how much more complicated it is for a provider to um, assure that they're meeting the rules and the regulations and billing effectively, and then in turn getting payment for it. Um, so you know, I, 
I can see where physicians look at this and think it's a negative. And it, because I think the changes are happening because of the pressures that are being put on them now that right. perhaps they didn't have 30 years ago. I agree. You know, the layering on of quality and, and pay performance and, um, has, has really, not to mention EHRs, has really up the, the ante and the, the workload mm -hmm. for physicians. So, all right, thanks for the comments on that, um, guys. We're going to just switch to our final segment of the show, which is our Actus update. This is a regular feature bringing you the latest updates on what's going on inside of Actus. Today I'd like to let our members know uh, that the 2017 conference materials, including all of our PowerPoint presentations, are now available on actus.org. We announced this recently in CDI Strategies, but so if you go to the website and you go to Resource Library and you go to Conference Materials, you will find that all of our 2017 materials, uh, excepting our keynote presentations are uh, are located here so you know this includes um, all tracks uh, our clinical coding track management track quality track um, CDI expansion so this again is it's not the recording of the session but it is the PowerPoint materials and we know that people find these helpful um, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to attend the conference this year or you you did attend, but you can't be in five places at once. You, you can at least find the PowerPoint here. One other cool thing we've just added, which you may not have seen, is we just added um, the poster sessions. So I'm not going to open this up, but this, this does take you to a zip file, and we have a nice, clear picture of every single conference poster that was presented at the conference. So, um, you know, if you didn't get a chance to see those posters or you wish you could have taking more time to view them during our breaks. Um, these are cool because they're, they're really intended to be a standalone and give you some information or an interesting process um, at a glance. So again, we had our, our photographer take a picture of all of our conference posters, more than 30 of them. I think more than 40 of them actually all said and done. So go ahead and check, the, check that out. Again, that's located on the Actus website under resource library and under conference materials. By the way, these go all the way back. I think they go back to maybe our first conference or maybe as far back as 2010. But um, you can search on that. Uh, you can search by category. You can search by uh, type here and uh, find what you need. I also just want to say, I'll go back to the main page of actus.org. Um, if you haven't taken a poll, we have a new poll up on the website. We're, um, in the process of planning for CDI week and we have a new poll what should our theme for 2017 CDI week be we're allowing our membership to vote the theme and then we'll develop a poster and the resources around that so uh, go ahead and take that poll if you haven't already all right well that is going to do it for um, today's edition of Actus Radio I hope to see you back here again in two weeks' time, we're going to be coming back on Wednesday, June 28th, for our next show, which is Mastering Clinical Concepts, Deep Delve into MIs. Um, so I hope you can join us for that program. Again, I want to thank Sandy for, for being here with us today, as well as Laurie. Uh, as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, or if you'd like to be a guest yourself, frankly, uh, you can please send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org and I'd be glad to uh, entertain that. That'll do it again for today. Um, thanks again for joining, and we'll see you again in two weeks.
Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you.